Support comes from Clipper Vacations, offering getaways on the Clipper Fast Ferry to Victoria, B.C. Clipper Ferry and hotel packages from $250 per person. Enjoy historic charm, afternoon tea, and more. Terms and conditions apply. Details and booking at clippervacations.com. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Monica Nicholsberg. And I'm Joshua McNichols. We're KUOW's economy team, and you're listening to Booming, stories from a city that almost never stops growing. Today, would you live in an apartment the size of a dorm room and agree to share a kitchen with your neighbors? My uh, kitchen, what do you want to call this a kitchen? You know, I've got a microwave, kind of a dorm-sized refrigerator, and a crock pot, and that's pretty much it. The U.S. used to have a lot of these micro apartments. They almost went extinct because the suburbs exploded, right? And everybody wanted bigger and bigger spaces. But now, Tiny is making a big comeback in other crowded cities like Tokyo, and lawmakers here are paying attention. We'll take you inside a couple Seattle-area micro-apartments and discuss what we could gain or what we could lose by bringing this kind of housing back. But first, Monica, catch me up on what you've been working on. I'm continuing to monitor Boeing as it puts out fires left and right. We all remember a couple weeks ago when a chunk of a 737 MAX 9 blew off mid-flight. It was a pretty harrowing incident, although fortunately nobody was seriously hurt. And the hits just keep on coming for Boeing. As of today's taping, the FAA is now recommending airlines inspect another model of aircraft than the 737 MAX 9. This plane, the 737-900ER, also has the door plug feature. And some other airlines have reported some findings related to that aircraft. We don't know exactly what those are. Yeah. So we're still watching that to find out what the implications are. I mean, what does that mean for for Boeing? It's like an anchor of our economy here, right? It is. And no matter what comes out of these investigations, it's not good for Boeing. I caught up with an aviation disaster expert, Christine Negroni, and she describes what Boeing's going through as Jaws syndrome. Once there's one shark attack, then every other shark attack becomes headlines. Boeing and the 737 MAX are firmly in JAWS territory here. In other words, there might not be a shark infestation, but if somebody at the beach in South Carolina gets attacked and another shark is spotted off the coast of Long Island, nobody's going in the water. Okay, and so I guess what she's saying is we in the media are sort of looking at Boeing now like it's another shark attack. Like they had this one door blow off and now there could be doors blown off every plane. Yeah, and more importantly than us in the media, travelers are looking at it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, all eyes are on Boeing, and every single one of these headlines erodes confidence. I don't know how a company with this sort of recent past and troubles on the horizon gains the public trust. So what are the implications of this for people in this region? Well, Boeing is still a big employer here and a huge economic force. It has basically one competitor. That's Airbus. And if Boeing's reputation continues to suffer and it no longer becomes the manufacturer of choice, that could have a lot of ripple effects for our economy. It could mean downsizing. It could have other implications. I'm not saying that's exactly what's going to happen because Boeing has certainly been in crises before and always seemed to kind of bounce back. But even before all this started, it was lagging behind Airbus. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So a lot of uncertainty on the horizon for Boeing. I'll be watching your reporting on this. Coming up next, the topic of the day, Tokyo-sized micro-apartments coming to a U.S. city near you. That's after the break. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, working to inspire the next generation of scientists and increase access to STEM education statewide through digital discovery workshops, science on wheels, and summer camps. More ways to support these efforts at PACSci.org. Well, what do you think? It's a hallway. It is a beautiful railroad-style apartment in your budget. Where's the bathroom? Where isn't the bathroom? Jeez, wear a catheter. Go in the corner. You can fit a king-size bed in here. Yeah, if you fold it up like a taco. Monica, I have a question for you. How much personal space do you need to live in? Oh, God, that's that's hard. It's totally... Relative. Like, you know, right now I live in a small two bedroom, one bathroom house and we're about to start an addition because it doesn't feel like enough space for our soon to be family of four. But, you know, before I had kids, my husband and I would spend weeks at a time living in a camper van. So it just depends. It depends on your mindset. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, we just got back from a family trip to Tokyo and, you know, it's got like 13 million people living in that city and people there have a very different sense a personal space. I, I went to this restaurant with my son and you have to crawl over somebody's back, you know, probably by leaning on them to get into your seat. My gosh, like at a movie theater when it's like impossible to get to the bathroom without stepping on someone. Very much like that. Now imagine <laughs> doing that with food in your hands. You oh, know? my God. And when it comes to apartments, there doesn't seem to be a limit on how small they can get. The smallest ones are called coffin apartments, and you can see videos of them on YouTube. Here is the capsule that we get to take a look at today. That's it. They're basically a bed with maybe a couple of feet to one side where you can store a few things. You know, sometimes they'll have a suit hanging up on a hanger. Um, Maybe there's a small chest of drawers. But the ceiling is only four feet high, so you have to crawl to get in. This is what they rent out. This is the entire space right here. I gotta say, as somebody with a touch of claustrophobia, the coffin apartment does not sound ideal to me. I know. I'm sure they don't use that in their marketing materials. (laughs) Another kind of apartment that's very popular in Tokyo is the micro apartment, which must feel gigantic if your last apartment was a coffin. In one of the world's most crowded cities, Tokyo, couples are cramming into 250 square foot homes. Japanese micro apartments are about half the size of a full studio apartment in the U.S. It's also the size of a small single car parking garage. Countertops fold out, the steps double as a sofa. The bathtub is part of the living room. Wild. Okay, so these are all over Tokyo where you just were, but what does this have to do with us in Seattle? Well, first, let me set the stage. There's been a lot of people moving here for high-paying jobs for a really long time. But there's not enough homes to put all those people in. We don't build the homes fast enough. That's forced people on lower incomes to move further and further out of the city center. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't sound like a new problem. We've been hearing for years about all the rich tech workers moving into Seattle and pushing people out. 
Exactly. It's been going on for a while. Ten years ago, though, the city of Seattle tried something new to deal with this problem. They tried micro-apartments. As Seattle's corporate-driven boom transforms the face of the city, tiny apartment units, or apartments, have sprung up throughout densely populated communities. And these new micro-apartment buildings started getting national attention. And Seattle boasts the highest number of micro-housing apartments in the country. Planners all over the country were looking at Seattle and saying, what are they doing? You know, there's a lot of interest. I don't know if it was the national attention or the backlash and people living in single-family neighborhoods, but the city council passed some regulations that, you know, made these less feasible to build, that you can build them in fewer places, they have to be bigger, they have to have certain things that go along with them. And now new ones are very rare, except in Redmond and Kirkland, you know, right across Lake Washington from Seattle. They opened the doors a little bit wider and kept them open to micro-apartments. And that's caught the interest of state lawmakers who are beginning to think this is a really good idea. Maybe we should allow it statewide. Wherever you can build apartment buildings now, they want to allow these micro-housing apartments. Okay, but what is it actually like inside of a micro-housing apartment? I mean, does it feel like a dorm building? Okay, we'll start with a sleeping area. It's really small. There's enough for like a single bed or maybe a double bed, but then you won't be able to fit much else in there. Um, There's a private bathroom. But then if you want to play a big board game, you know, like Settlers of Catan, that has got all these cards and dice and stuff. You got to go down to the lounge because your table in your room is tiny. If you want to roast a turkey, you got to go down the hall to the shared kitchen because you don't have an oven. And there are lots of common spaces all over the building where you can gather with your neighbors or with friends. I got to say, that does remind me of college. (laughs) Yeah, it is a little bit. And like college, you know, there's an expectation that you don't necessarily have a car, you know? And so they only build a few parking spaces for these buildings. So do people like living there? Well, I'm going to let some of the residents answer that question for you. Uh, The first person I want to introduce you to is Carl Wade. He is a 79-year-old barber. His barber shop is three blocks away from his building. And he says his customers tease him about that because his commute is so short. My customer, a customer says, Carl, you're going to get fat, you know, because you, <laughs> you're walking so little. It's a funny, you know, quote, but I, I just want to drive this home. There are a lot of jobs in this area, so Carl doesn't have to walk far. Yeah, it makes sense, especially as you get older. You know, I could see this being a good option for senior folks. Yeah. Carl is a guy who's worked really hard to simplify his life. You know, he doesn't have a car. He's given away a lot of his stuff over the years. I'm very comfortable. And um, my blood pressure and my I think feel like my health is much better. Uh, Why? I think a, a smaller space, it's easier to take care of. If I had more space, I would probably accumulate things. You know, pretty soon I'd have my wayward son coming, oh, dad, you know, can I live with you again? Or, you know, or (laughs) you need a pet. Okay, so this works great for Carl, but I can't imagine everybody wants to live in a tiny apartment with a shared kitchen, right? I mean, I remember a lot of fights with roommates over dirty dishes when I was younger. (laughs) So why do most of these residents choose to live here? Affordability, you know, 
I mean, we're we're growing as a region, but there's not enough housing for everybody. So we need places for people to live. And because these are smaller, they tend to cost less. How much do they cost? At this apartment in Kirkland, $1,300 a month. $1,300 a month. I got to say, that doesn't sound like a screaming deal. Yeah, right? Well, when, when people encounter these rents at these micro units, a lot of times they get sticker shock. You know, they say, that's not cheap. But the critical thing here is that they are cheaper than studios in the same neighborhood. Like studios here rent for at least $2,000 a month. So the key here is that they are relatively, and I emphasize that, relatively affordable options in neighborhoods where people want to live. And a lot of times those neighborhoods are, you know, near big tech employers. You know, Redmond's another place where they're building these. That's the home of Microsoft. You know, consider this barber I introduced you to, Carl Wade. I I mean, you might wonder why a barber would care about being located right next to Google. You know, he said, because my customers are here. Well, let's look at who the customers are right near Google. (laughs) You know, they are people who work at Google. And uh, he probably gets, you know, a higher fee for his haircuts. And he probably gets way better tips there than he would in another neighborhood. Yeah, tech workers make good customers. I, I get that. I mean, I think this is the benefit of mixed income communities, right? It's one way to share prosperity from people who make more money to the service providers who sell services to those people. And I'm just curious if that scales. If we build more of these types of buildings, does that bring down the cost of housing across the board? And does it allow more barbers and, and people like Carl to live in these wealthier neighborhoods? So I, I hear two questions in what you're asking. First, it does bring down the cost of housing. It's a little hard to compare apples to apples, but basically rents in Tokyo, where they have lots of these micro-housing apartments, are averaging $500 to $900 in U.S. money. You know? Wow. Um, compare that to Seattle, where the rent here is over $2,000 on average for an apartment. There's other factors, you know, making the cost of housing low in Tokyo. You know, the yen is weak and, you know, the population is aging and declining slightly. But to the second part of your question, which is, does it let people on lower salaries live in wealthier neighborhoods? Absolutely. That is crystal clear. I mean, Carl's a barber and there's lots of teachers and healthcare workers there in this building, too. People who couldn't afford to live in a larger apartment charging market rate in that neighborhood. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. I, I get that, like, the mixture of people of all different ages and incomes doing different types of work is a good thing for communities. But personally, I still have kind of a hard time imagining living in such a small space and especially sharing a kitchen. Did you talk to anybody else living there? I did. I met Zureb Nelson. We walk down the halls together of his apartment building, and like everybody is greeting him. They all know this guy. How are you? Good, how are you? Nice to see you. He's 35 years old. He comes from the Republic of Georgia. He has a disability, and his job is that he works in the cafeteria across the street at Google. One of his favorite parts of this location is how central it is. There's a coffee shop right there. There's a restaurant. There's a KFC. There's a post office. It's a wonderful place to live. So I got to see the inside of his apartment. Uh, To reach the sleeping area, you sort of squeeze past a dresser and some shelves and a little bed for his companion dog, Bunny. What would you say to people who say, you know, I don't want to live in a space that small. I don't think anyone should have to live in a space that small. I think the people who say things like that, they're spoiled. 
things you have right now, you have to appreciate that, really. A lot of people, they sleep in the street and, uh, and they really want to have a place like where I live. So I'm sorry, but I like it where I am. I mean, location you're looking at, bro, is so nice. I feel like he's talking directly to me. I have to admit, <laughs> this conversation is bringing up a little bit of guilt for me. You know, I live in a small house, which I know I'm really lucky to have, and it's so much more than so many people have. But for the size of my family, it doesn't, it feels like we're bursting at the seams. And that's why we're, you know, doing this edition. So I guess my question is is it fair for me to recognize that this is something that could be really beneficial for our communities? And, you know, ask people to move into this kind of building when it's not something I would necessarily choose for myself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would say you still can live in the place you live. That's fine. That's not going to go away because these are going to be allowed. I mean, one thing to keep in mind is that this is creating options for people, but it's not taking options away from people. I mean, people can still live in single family homes. You know, they don't, they don't have to move into a micro unit. They can still have that. We, we aren't building enough affordable stuff right now. We're not meeting the demand. And if, if we as a region can't grow out and can't sprawl over our farms and our forests, then we need to grow up inside those areas if we're going to accommodate more people. And we have not allowed that to happen. Yeah, it still has me wondering, though, like, how much space does a person actually need? I was reading recently this housing expert did this study where she looked at what it would mean if everybody in the world shared space equitably. And the average size of a home for a family of four in the study was 860 square feet. For a single person, it was 215 square feet. 215 square feet. That is almost exactly the size of Carl Wade the Barber's apartment. It's a micro apartment. It's a micro <laughs> apartment. You've just described a micro apartment. You know, ultimately, how much space you need, it's a personal decision. And we've been here before. Homes used to be smaller. You know, historically, loggers and railway porters and fishermen used to live in tiny apartments in, you know, including boarding houses and residential hotels in downtowns across the country. The point I'm trying to make here is that our notion of how much space we need is totally a product of the time and the place where we live. The regulations we have in any, in any city or region are sort of a statement of our values. In this case, you know, we have zoning regulations that say what you can build and where, and it has to be a certain size, you know. Our values evolve and we can change the rules, too. Yeah, totally. OK, this is giving me a lot to think about in the sort of abstract. But take me back down to earth. Where do we actually go from here? What's next for these micro apartments? Well, the bill that would allow micro apartments across the state of Washington, wherever you can currently build regular apartment buildings, it's making its way through the legislature. If it passes this session, we could see a lot more buildings like this in just a few short years, two or three. If it doesn't pass, it'll probably come back next year just because of how fast people's thinking has evolved on this. You know, it's it's become part of the zeitgeist now in terms of how do we address our housing needs. 
And those attitudes have changed in just a few short years. Yeah, I've noticed the conversation around density changed a lot in the past few years. So I'm excited to see how it continues to evolve. Coming up next, we're going to play a little game. Okay, to close out, I've got this fun little guessing game planned. Okay. It has to do with what we've been talking about. Guess which capital city has the smallest average home size, you know, like in the world. In the world. Hmm. Is it Copenhagen? Oh, that's a really good guess. Thank you. Usually whenever the conversation is like, where are people doing things better? I just go to, you know, Scandinavia. (laughs) I thought you were going to guess Tokyo. But actually, it's Moscow in Russia. (laughs) Okay. What's Moscow doing differently? Well, their average home size is 490 square feet, which is basically like if you were to stick five Subaru Outbacks in a room together. I I honestly don't know how they get the average that low, but, you know. Yeah, well, maybe in the city they've got, like, excellent public transportation or whatever the amenities are that make it feasible to downsize like that. Yeah, or maybe they're just used to, like, tiny communist block-style housing. I don't know. (laughs) Could be. Okay, so now I want you to guess which capital city has the largest average home size. Is it state capital or nation capital? The nation capital. Okay, the capital of a nation. I was going to guess Salt Lake City, but um, <laughs> let me think. I'm going to guess Ottawa, Canada. Ottawa, Canada. Huh, interesting. Kind of a shot in the dark. <laughs> Why? I don't know, because I felt like it would be too obvious to guess uh, D.C., and I was like, what's kind of like America? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's a good guess. It's Canberra in Australia. I'm not not sure how to pronounce it, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but... I was going to guess Australia, but I couldn't remember the capital. (laughs) Well, it's the average home size there is 2,757 square feet. That is huge. (laughs) Well, you know, the funny thing is that average home size in Australia... It's not even legal to build that anymore in the city of Seattle. They're called McMansions, and they've been outlawed. Really? Yeah. I mean, people are still doing it. Basically, they're just they're they're getting away with it because they put a mother-in-law unit in the basement and maybe a backyard cottage in the back. And, you know, technically, it's three different units. A McMansion complex. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I don't need a McMansion anytime soon, but I still am very attached to my little house. And this conversation has me thinking a lot about what it would actually take for me to downsize. I'm curious about you, too. Like, you live in a house. Yeah. What would it take for you to move into a smaller place? Well, let me put it this way. You know, once our kids move out, you know, I, there's obviously we don't need as many bedrooms. But even more than that, like, I used to live in Capitol Hill with my partner, and we loved the energy of that place. And when we had to move, you know, to grow our family because we couldn't afford a larger place on Capitol Hill, um, we had to move to a neighborhood that was mostly single family homes. And it, it felt like we were moving to the suburbs at that time, even though it's in the city. And I miss that energy we felt in that neighborhood, you know, where, where we saw people that we knew every day walking up and down the street. Yeah, I think it's all about the amenities. The thing that I love most about my current situation is I love to garden. It's really important to me to be able to grow my own food. And if I were to move into a smaller place, I would need something like a like a beautiful community garden where I was growing food with my neighbors. And, you know, big picture, we can evolve. We can rethink how much space that we need. But we also need to build really livable communities where people are willing to make that trade off. Yeah, but let me tell you this. When I lived in that small space in Capitol Hill, um, we 
wanted to garden too. And so we went out and helped build the community garden that is on Capitol Hill, the Thomas Street Pea Patch, they call it. And I, I mean, that was driven directly by that same desire for a, a space to garden. And Honestly, that became the source of many of our friends that we would see every day as we were walking up and down the main street there. They came from building that community garden together. So small spaces, in some ways, they can make you, in some situations, more of an engaged community member. Yeah, absolutely. I also love that I think listeners of this show, if they stick with us, will learn that while you came for an economy podcast, Joshua and I will always try to turn it into a gardening podcast. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's it for Booming. New episodes come out every other Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Lucy Suchek. Our editor is Carol Smith. I'm Monica Nicholsberg. And I'm Joshua McNichols. And we'll see you next time.